This afternoon, I may preach God's word to you as we find that in Lord's Day 30, about who may attend the table of the Lord. In connection with that, I thought there's two passages of scripture that I'd like to read with you. The first one is taken from Psalm 51, and the second passage is from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So we're going to start reading together from Psalm 51. Hear the word of God. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you... You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. And then we turn in our reading to to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. In 1 Corinthians 11, we're just going to read the last part of that chapter, so we're going to start reading at verse 17, and we'll read through to the end of the chapter. One Corinthians 11, verse 17, hear the word of God. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord 
what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why... Many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And about the other things, I will give directions when I come. So far, the reading of God's Word. And this afternoon, we're going to consider the, the question of who may attend the table of the Lord. We'll do that by looking at what the Church has summarized to confess in Lord's Day 31 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Sorry, Lord's Day 30. If you want to follow along, you can find that on page 545 of your Book of Praise. Lord's Day 30, starting with question answer 80 there. What difference is there between the Lord's Supper and the Papal Mass? The Lord's Supper testifies to us, first, that we have complete forgiveness of all our sins through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself accomplished on the cross once for all. And second, that through the Holy Spirit, we are grafted into Christ, who with his true body is now in heaven at the right hand of the Father, and that this is where he wants to be worshipped. But the Mass teaches, first, that the living and the dead do not have forgiveness to sins through the suffering of Christ unless he is still offered for them daily by the priests, and second, that Christ is bodily present in the form of bread and wine, and there is to be worshipped. Therefore, the Mass is basically nothing but a denial of the one sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ and an accursed idolatry. Who are to come to the table of the Lord? those who are truly displeased with themselves because of their sins, and yet, yet trust that these are forgiven them and that their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ, and who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and amend their life. But hypocrites and those who do not repent eat and drink judgment upon themselves. Are those to be admitted to the Lord's Supper who by their confession and life show that they are unbelieving and ungodly? No, for then the covenant of God would be profaned and his wrath kindled against the whole congregation. Therefore, according to the command of Christ and his apostles, the Christian church is duty-bound to exclude such persons by the keys to the kingdom of heaven until they amend their lives. Then after the proclamation of the gospel, we're going to sing together from Psalm 32, the verses 1, 2, and 3.
Dear brothers and sisters, congregation loved by the Lord Jesus Christ, one of the reasons why the Lord instituted the Lord's Supper is to remind us and to assure us of the love and the mercy that he extends to us in Christ. You know, in normal life, brothers and sisters, we face spiritual attacks. For each of us, it's different, different times, different places, different ways, but we face attack. And the result is that sometimes we give in to attack. We say things, we do things that are really sinful before the Lord. And these things damage our relationship with God. At times we, we recognize that, you see that, that you're not as close to the Lord as, as you could be. You, you realize that there's something in your life that, that puts distance between you and God. And you're sad about that. You wish it to be different. When you're in that place, then the Lord gives you the Lord's Supper to assure you of the forgiveness of your sins. He wants you to know for sure in your heart that he's not angry with you, but that he loves you for Jesus' sake, that he's willing to forgive you. And the whole point of the Lord's Supper is, is he wants you to take the attention off yourself, and he wants to put the attention on your Savior. You know, usually when we sin, we get, we get stuck in ourselves, what I'm doing or what I'm not doing and how bad it is, and then am I worthy and, and what do I really deserve? And the more you keep the attention on yourself, the more trouble you get into. But in the Lord's Supper, we're, we're reminded that we ought to put our attention on Jesus Christ. It's not about us, but it's about him. It's about who he is and what he's accomplished and what he's done for us. And so the Lord gives us this beautiful reminder. I'm not sure when you, when you celebrate Lord's Supper next time, but, but when you do, you have this, this delightful reminder of the fact that your Father is willing to forgive you and that he loves you. Well, that raises the question, who's to attend? Who's allowed to come to the Lord's Supper? Is it meant for everyone? Should we allow anyone who wishes to to come forward to the table? Or do we restrict the Lord's Supper in some way? And if you decide to restrict it, then the question becomes, well, how are you going to do that? Who are you going to let, let come and who are you going to keep away? On Lord's Day 30 here, we summarize the biblical teaching that the Lord's Supper is to be restricted to believers. And that gets into a bit of the, the conflict that they had with the Roman Catholic Church. You know, in the Reformed churches, when the Reformed churches came around, then one of the things that they emphasized is that they said, the way we share in Jesus Christ is through faith. You must believe in Jesus Christ. And so what the Reformers really emphasized is, especially for the young people first, if the young people want to, to join and be able to come forward to celebrate the Mass, then it's not just about confirmation. It's not just about the priest laying his hands on you, asking you, do you believe in, in the Apostles' Creed, and, and then allowing you to come to the Mass. But at that time, what the Reformers said is they said, you're allowed to come if you believe in Jesus Christ. And what does it mean to believe in Jesus Christ? Well, all the reformers started writing up their own catechisms. Luther wrote up his catechism, and Calvin wrote a catechism, and Beza and others, they all wrote their catechisms, and they said, well, these are the things that you need to believe in order to come to the table. And over time, as, as reformed churches, we really settled on, on the Heidelberg Catechism. We said this is a really beautiful summary of the Word of God. And so we teach our children the Heidelberg Catechism and we ask them, before they're, willing, before they're able to come to the Lord's table, we ask them, do you believe these things? 
Here's a good summary of the doctrines of the scriptures, of who God is, what God has accomplished for you in Jesus Christ. And do you believe that? And if a young person says, yes, I, I believe this. This is true in my life. I, I know this to be true. Then we say, okay. Then the elders say, okay. Then in that case, then you are permitted to come to the Lord's Supper. What that also means is that it's restricted only to those people. If you don't believe that, if you don't make that confession, then you ought not to come. And at core, the whole message of the catechism, the whole message of the scriptures is that you believe that Jesus Christ is your Savior, that you can't do it in your own strength, but that God has to do it for you. And if you're in that space, if you acknowledge Christ is your Savior, if you acknowledge your own sin and weakness, then the Lord says, please come. You're welcome to celebrate my meal with me. And so I preach God's word to you with this theme, the Lord restricts the Lord's Supper to believers. We're going to see, in the first place, the calling to examine ourselves, and secondly, the calling for the elders to examine us. I have to ask you, brothers and sisters, have you ever struggled with the question as to whether or not you should attend the Lord's Supper? You ever had it? Kind of wonder in the back of your head, uh, I don't know if I should really go this time. You know, my work as a pastor, from time to time I have that conversation with people. Some people struggle with a particular sin. They have some sin in their life and they recognize it to be sinful and they, you know, they're really sorry about that. And yet it seems to be this is one of their besetting sins. It's the same thing that they go back to. And over and over again, they fall into this same sin. You want to change. You've taken the matter before the Lord, and you've confessed it to the Lord, you've asked for his forgiveness, you want to be a different person, yet it seems that you keep falling into that same sin. Well, do you come to the Lord's table? Or let's say you've committed a rather serious sin. You've confessed it to God, but you feel really bad about what you did. And maybe you're periodically reminded about the consequences of that or about the sin that you committed because of the consequences. There's certain ways in which your life or the lives of the people around you are deeply affected by the sin that you committed. And that puts it back in your face from time to time. Well, how do you deal with that? Do you still come to the Lord's table? Well, it's in these contexts that we have a personal responsibility. Nobody else knows our heart. No one else can see into your heart. And so the Lord says, you personally have a responsibility to examine your heart to see whether or not you should attend. But then the question becomes, well, do you come or do you stay? And how do you decide that question? How do you decide to answer that? Well, to answer the question, it may be helpful to, to read a few verses from John 3. If you want to open your Bible with me, I'll just, I'll do that with you. If you, we have in John 3, verse 16, we have the most famous verse probably in the scriptures. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so the promise there is that if we believe in the Lord Jesus, then we have eternal life. But then if you keep reading after that, 
It's a few verses later that the Lord, he works it out for us. Christ tells us there that not everyone will share in the gift of God's grace. If you want to read with me, John 3, verse 19, it says, And this is the judgment, the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. John's saying here, you can be the kind of person who, who hates the light and who doesn't come into the light. You sin, but you refuse to come into the light. You refuse to allow the light to shine in on your sins. Or you can be people who come into the light, and you allow the light of God to shine on your sin because you trust Jesus Christ to forgive your sins. And you know of his grace that he'll extend to you, which he's promised to you. And so one of the core questions is, do you hate the light or do you come into the light? Do you hide in the darkness or do you become, do you come clean with God? Well, you know, brothers and sisters, the question is pretty straightforward. But the answer is not always that easy. And the reason for that is because we're off in a mixed bag. On the one hand, there's often a lot of beautiful things in our lives. You know, we're people who, who know God, and we live with God. We trust God. We love to worship God. You know, many of us, we have really beautiful families. We're diligent in our work. We provide for our families, and we train up our children to know God. We have a lot of love and kindness with our friendships. You know, there's just a really lot of beautiful things that are going on in our lives. But you know, at the same time, there can also be other things that go on in our lives. Maybe you lack self-control. Maybe you give greed or covetousness or discontent or lust a place in your heart. Maybe you're really impatient with your children. And you end up yelling at your children. And you get really angry with them because of what they do. Or maybe you pursue entertainment that's really very godless. If you look at the, the history on your phone, or if you look at the, the movies that you watched on Netflix, these are things that, that are in no way pleasing to God. Well, what's the truth of your life then, brothers and sisters? Are you walking in the light? Or are you walking in the darkness? Well, to answer the question, maybe it's helpful to consider the life of King David. David is the character in the Bible we probably know the most about. We have all these stories about his life. Pretty much a whole book is devoted to, to the story of his life. And on top of that, we have these Psalms, in which David gives a profound indication of his faith in God and what that really looked like for him and what that meant for him. On the one hand, we're shown that David's a man who loves the Lord and who trusts the Lord. He had this profound trust in God's love and care. You, know, you have 1 Samuel 17. He gets into the, the battle with Goliath. He comes to the battlefield there, 
And he's incensed with this Philistine who blasphemes his God. And then he, he trusts the Lord to help him. He says, you know, if nobody else is going to do it, I'll go fight this guy. And then he says to Goliath, he says, you come to me with sword and spear, but I come to you in the name of the Lord. And he had full confidence in God that he was able to defeat this giant. And that's exactly what happens. Or you have another, another situation. He's fighting with his enemies over and over and over. He fought against his enemies. And, and sometimes, you know, he's greatly outnumbered. Yet you read a psalm like Psalm 18, and he has profound trust in God that the Lord will give him victory. Or you have Psalm 3. His son does a coup against him. And he's got the army of Israel coming up behind him. And he crosses the Jordan, and he's sitting there, and he's, you know, his life is on the line. His son is coming after him. And what does he do? Psalm 3, well, he lies down, and he goes to sleep. And he sleeps in peace because he knows that the Lord is God and that the Lord's going to care for him. Well, I've never had thousands of people who are coming after me to kill me. But I can imagine that if was, that was to happen, I don't know how much sleep I would get that night. Could be a bit difficult to sleep. Well, David, has, he's got great trust. He knows his God, and he trusts his God. Or in 2 Samuel 7, you can think of the love that David has for God. As an act of love, he wants to build a temple for the Lord. He's so grateful for everything that God's done for him, and he wants to reflect his love to God by building the temple. Or in 1 Samuel 18, you can think of his friendship with Jonathan. Jonathan's arrival to the throne. Jonathan's the son of Saul, the king of Israel. But there's no spirit of competition between them. No, these men are believers in God, and they really recognized each other as brothers in faith. And so they had this deep and profound friendship between them, and they promised to look after their descendants. David promised Jonathan, and Jonathan promised David that they're going to care for each other, and they're going to love each other, and they're going to do that through the generations. What a profound demonstration of the work of the Spirit of God in the life of a person. Or throughout the course of his life, we're told how David exercises justice and righteousness. Psalm 26, Psalm 101, he keeps away from him any evil man. He doesn't want evil people influencing his judgment. But he surrounds himself with the righteous because he wants to walk in the ways of the Lord. And he wants to exercise righteous judgments. When you think about these things, brothers and sisters, what a joy it must have been for the Lord to have David as his son. Here's a man who loves and trusts him. The man who with his whole heart, he knows God. And he walks with God. And he trusts God. But then, you know, at the same time, there's also these dark episodes in David's life. 2 Samuel 11, he commits adultery with Bathsheba. She conceives, and David's first reaction is that he wants to cover it up. He tries to get Uriah back from the battlefield, and he tries to get him to go home to be with his wife. And when he fails the first night, then he gets Uriah really drunk the second night, and he tries again. And the man refuses to do that. He's not going to go be with his wife when his comrades in arms are on the battlefield risking their lives. And so then David takes it into his own hands and he kills the man with the sword of the Ammonites. Well, they have adultery and deception and murder. Or in 1 Chronicles 1, we're told the story of David numbering the fighting men of Israel, the motives pride. 
So in 2 Samuel 24, it tells us that because the Lord's anger burned against Israel for their sins, and because David numbered the people, 70,000 of the Israelites died. When you think about that, that's, that's about as many people as live in Armadale. That's a result of David's pride and his numbering the people. Well, the question becomes, how do these sins affect David's relationship with God? Where do they leave him? Does he still have a relationship with God? Or does he hide from God? Does God cut him off? Or does he feel free to come in to the presence of God? You know, if you think about the sin that he committed with Bathsheba, it was pretty complicated at that time for him. His gut reaction was to try to hide the sin. He didn't want anybody to know. And so he tried to cover it over. He tried to get Uriah to, to make things right there. And then he kills the man because he desperately wants to cover over his sin and he doesn't want anyone to find out what he had done wrong. Well, do you know that feeling, brothers and sisters? When you're really ashamed of what you've done, your first instinct is to try to cover it over, to make sure that nobody finds out. It's a really terrible place to be. Psalm 32, David talks about that, what it was really like for him in that moment. Psalm 32, verse 2, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. He's saying when he kept his sins hidden, when he covered them over, he felt sick. Day and night, God's hand was heavy upon him. There's no energy. There's no joy. There's no zest for life. Now David has everything, all the energies drained out of him. It's as if he, he's really sick and the, the life is sucked out of him. Well, that's what happens when you have unconfessed sin, brothers and sisters. And the guilt and the shame can be brutal. That you live in the fear that someone's going to find out what you've done. You wonder when your lies are going to be uncovered. And the worst part is that you're estranged from the people around you. You're estranged from the Lord. David talks about it again in Psalm 51. After he comes through the experience, then, then he writes what it's really like for him during that time. This psalm will really give him quite some insight of where David was at during this time. In the first place, he pleads with God for forgiveness. He says in verse 3, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Have you ever had that? You know your transgressions. Your sin is ever before you. The one thing you want to forget about, you want to put far away from you, it keeps coming back into your conscience, and it keeps facing you, and you can't seem to get away from it. Well, that's the place that David was at. And so he longs for the day when he's going to be washed, when he has joy in his heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. And he talks about the even more serious consequences of his sin, that it estranges him from God. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. 
Cast me not away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. It got so bad for him that at one point he thought that that God was going to reject him, that God wouldn't have anything to do with him any longer. Well, do you see how complicated life gets sometimes, brothers and sisters? If a man who loves God, who devotes his life to God's service, and who at the same time commits serious sin, and those sin have a profound impact on his relationship with God. And so let me ask you, when David was in that space, he's committed this sin with Bathsheba, should he have come to the Lord's Supper? Should he have gone into the temple to worship God as if nothing was wrong, as if everything was okay? Doesn't seem right, does it? If you've sinned, and if you haven't come clean, then you shouldn't come, brothers and sisters. If you don't confess your sins, if you don't acknowledge them to the Lord, that your sins will weigh down on you, that you must confess them. You must ask for forgiveness. You are guilty. You need to repent. It's only after you repent that you come to the Lord's table. The Lord's Day 30, we confess there that hypocrites and those who don't repent eat and drink judgment upon themselves. You know, we see that sometimes as office bearers. Sometimes it happens that someone sins. And they're in this space where they're not ready to come clean from their sin. They can't face it yet. They're too ashamed. And then we have Lord's Supper and and they don't attend. They don't show up at church that Sunday. And so then the elders follow it up with them. They call them up and they say, hey, we missed you on Sunday. Are you okay? And then the answer you get depends how honest the person is being. Maybe they say, oh, I wasn't feeling 100%. Yeah, that's true. Sin will do that to you. You don't feel 100%. Maybe the real answer is that you feel guilty. You don't feel like you're in the right place, that you can come to the Lord's Supper. Well, instead of making excuses, the Lord has a better solution for us, brothers and sisters. He calls us to come clean, to come into the open, to come into the light. He doesn't want sin to suck the life out of us. It's when we confess our sins, when we're honest with God, then he will forgive us. He promises that. Psalm 32, verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. There's no deceit. If you're honest, if you come clean, if there's no deceit, then you will be blessed. Then the Lord says, come to the table, and I want to assure you of my forgiveness. And I want you to know deep in your heart that I am not angry with you, but I've washed away all your sins. And so the core thing is is to come clean, to come into the light, to come into the open. You know, brothers and sisters, that's a really hard thing for us. You know, as, as a church community, we're a pretty tight community. We know each other. We know each other pretty well. 
I had the opportunity to, to speak to the, to the singles. We had a fellowship conference a couple of weeks ago. We we're talking about spiritual warfare. We we're talking about sometimes that we're attacked by the devil and his demons. Sometimes we're attacked by our own sinful nature of the world. And sometimes sin gets a fair bit of power in our lives. And we get to the place where it's not just that we're tempted. It's not just that we regularly fall into temptation, but sometimes we get to the place where we have no resistance to temptation whatsoever. And we're tempted and we fall, and we're tempted and we fall, and we're tempted and we fall. And then someone asks the question, why don't we ever talk about that? Why don't we ever have those conversations together about the fact that we're struggling with that and that we're in that place? It's hard. It's a hard thing to be open about because you have to trust the other person to love and care for you. You have to trust the other person to have grace to you. You have to trust that they want to know you and that they really love you, that they'll be there to support you, to help you through it. Well, it's an important thing for us to do for each other, brothers and sisters. Because if we, if we can't come clean, then, then we become estranged, not just from each other, but from the Lord. And our Father wishes to save us from that. He wants us to come into the light and to receive his grace and forgiveness. And so he calls us, Ephesians 5 verse 1, he calls us to love one another as he has loved us to imitate his love, to walk in his footsteps, and to show the kind of grace and kindness and forgiveness and tenderheartedness to one another that he has shown to us. And you know, sometimes it's really hard for us to, to get there. We're not in that space to do it. David was in that, that same place, and thankfully the Lord didn't leave him there. One of the precious gifts that God gave him is he gave him the prophet Nathan. And Nathan comes to David, and Nathan confronts him. And he does it by means of a parable. And then you see something of, of the deceptiveness of sin. You know, the Scripture tells us over and over again about how, how sin is deceptive and how it blinds us. Think, for example, of, of Jeremiah 17, verse 9. There it talks about how, how our hearts are corrupt and how we're blinded by our sins. Well, that's exactly what happens to David. Nathan comes to him, and Nathan tells him this, this parable of, of a rich man and a poor man, and the rich man has a friend who comes to him, and instead of killing one of his, his many lambs, he goes and takes the one lamb from the one poor man, his only lamb that lives with the family, and he kills that man's lamb. And when David hears the story, then he's incensed. That man deserves to die. He has to pay fourfold for what he's done. And we're reading the story and we're thinking to ourselves, hello, David, this is you. Why don't you get it? But sin does that. It blinds you to it so you don't see it. And it's if you're in that space, then the Lord confronts you so that you can come clean. He sends someone to you. And that's exactly what happens for David. Nathan confronts him. And then David acknowledges, yes, I have sinned. And he's really honest about it. And it's the most exhilarating, refreshing experience of his life. He talks about that in Psalm 32, verse 5. 
Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover over my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at the time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they will not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. God is a refuge. God surrounds him. God is the source of shouts of deliverance for David. He's so thankful that he can confess his sin, that he can come clean. For Jesus' sake, the Lord has great compassion on us. He delights to show mercy to us, brothers and sisters. He doesn't, he's not a father who holds it against us, but he's a father who will forgive us. You know, it's the same thing that happened later for David again. He numbers the people, 2 Chronicles chapter 21 or 2 Samuel 24. And then after he numbers the people, 2 Samuel 24 verse 10, but David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I've sinned greatly in what I've done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of, the ser- of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. He's conscience-stricken. He realizes deep in his heart how much, he's confe- how much he's sinned against the Lord, and so he confesses his sins to God. And then it's really striking to see what happens next. The next verse, 2 Samuel 24, 25, after David humbled himself and acknowledged his sin in counting the fighting men of Israel, that he offers to the Lord burnt offering and a fellowship offering. And a burnt offering, it's an offering for sin. It's an offering of complete devotion to God. And a fellowship offering, it's an offering that signifies the, the fellowship, the intimacy that you have with God. And so David's not thrown out of God's presence because of his sin. He confesses his sin, and then he's welcomed back into the presence of God. He has intimacy and closeness with his Father in heaven. Well, that's the, the gift of God that he gives to you as well, brothers and sisters. He invites you into his presence. He wants you to come clean, and he offers to forgive all your sins. You know, in our congregation, we have a number of people who've come out of darkness. They've come out of the darkness of addictions. And when you're in that space, then it's a really difficult place to be in. And one of the things that they're taught up front is they're taught the only way that it's ever going to change for you is if you're honest. If you own what you've done. And it's shameful. It's really shameful. It's so amazing because these men, they understand that. And they don't make any more excuses. They're past the excuses. Excuses lead to more darkness. But the truth leads to the light. And so they walk in the truth. And they face the shame. But the reason they can face the shame is because they know Christ. And what Christ does is he takes your shame upon himself. When he came into this world then he came to bear your shame. He was treated very shamefully by his father in heaven. He came as a, as a little baby, and he's born in a manger, and he grows up as a nobody in the backwaters of Nazareth. And he's rejected by his family, and he's rejected by the people, and he's attacked by the church leaders. And he gets to the end of his life, and he's falsely accused. He's flogged. 
and he's crucified. They take away his clothes. They cast lots for his garments. He's hanging up there naked on the cross. And he does it to bear your shame. He takes the shame that you deserve, and he lived that shame because he wants to fill you with his honor so that you experience the honor that he got, that he deserved, and that he got. And that's the great exchange. When you're honest about your sin, when you confess your sin, when you come clean about your sin, then you don't have to bear any shame for it because Christ covers that. With his blood, the shame is all taken away from you. And instead, you get to share in the honor of the Lord. You are a sinner, and you have committed evil, but Christ has covered you. And there is no more guilt. Your guilt is totally taken away. It's covered on the cross. And your shame also is totally covered for you. There is no more shame. When you stand before the Lord at the end of time, then people are going to see you. And what they're going to see is they're going to see someone who's righteous and holy, someone who's covered in the blood of Jesus, someone who stands before God with a clean heart because of all that Christ has done for you. Well, that's the calling, brothers and sisters, that you humble yourself before your Father, that you come clean, and that you receive his blessing in your life. And you're in that space, brothers and sisters, and then going to the Lord's Supper is the most beautiful thing that you can ever do. You come to the Lord's table not to declare that you are perfect and righteous in yourself, but you come to the Lord's table to declare that you are a sinner, that you're worthy of judgment, that you believe that Christ has done that for you, and you believe that for Jesus' sake, that God loves you, and that he delights to have fellowship with you. And so God's intention is that you take the attention off yourself, that you believe the promises, and that you come to the table. And if you're not in the place where you're able to come clean yet, then as the Lord sent Nathan to David, so the Lord will send the elders to you. You know, over time, sin becomes obvious. You know, at first you can hide your sins. Nobody needs to know. It's something that's, that we keep low and but over time, it becomes obvious. If you, if you live in sin, then sin sucks the joy out of life. Then you feel sick, like David did. If you live in sin, then, then you don't have the joy of the Lord inside of you. And that becomes obvious, and it starts coming out in, in all the brokenness that comes out because of sin. And eventually, one day, the lies are uncovered, and people see the truth of who you really are and what's really going on in your life. Well, if you're in that space, then the elders, they come visit you and they knock on your door and they ask you some hard questions and they call you to account. And if it ever happens to you, brothers and sisters, then it is the grace of God. He loves you and he wants to bring you into the kingdom. And so he sends his messenger to your doorstep to speak words of truth to you and to call you to come into the light. And if they come to you, then, then don't deny and don't minimize and don't justify, don't excuse. And when they come to you, then you come into the light. And you speak the truth. And you face it honestly. And you will be forgiven. And so the elders, they have a significant responsibility. Of course, after the members do, as members, we also have a responsibility to help each other. And sometimes the elders get involved. And if that ever happens, then you... You accept the admonition from these brothers. You receive it as a gift of God 
who's drawing you back to himself. You know, at the end of the day, the Lord loves you as his children, brothers and sisters. He's bringing you to glory. He knows that it's spiritual war. But he says, I'm going to help you. I'm going to do what it takes to bring you to myself. Let's look to Jesus as the author and the finisher of our faith. Let's rely upon him. Let's humble ourselves for our sins. And let's come to the Lord's Supper to receive the assurance of God's love and faithfulness to us. Amen.